previously on Here's What I've Heard. But he was out just being reckless with, you know, some friends, and they got careless and we got to drinking. And other than being a person, you know, his character, all that, I mean, you know, he was a good father. Um, other than maybe, you know, he liked to drink. Carol wasn't the first family member of Tommy Kaler that I spoke to about that night. Remember what I mentioned earlier about that tip I received that led me to her? It came from Tommy's ex-wife, Rose. And while Carol maintains that Tommy was a good person, Rose tells a much different story. Oh, he was a very mean person. First, it was easy to find information about Tommy Kaler. I knew how old he was and that he was married at the time of the accident. I even had a social security number from public records. But as I came to learn, every piece of information gave me more questions than answers. It took me several years and a few weird coincidences to connect the dots. I'll explain that more in the next episode. But eventually, I found Tommy Kaler's ex-wife, Rose. Well, more accurately, I found her son, who graciously gave me her number. So, with shaky hands, I closed myself in the closet, for better audio, you know, and I dialed her up. Hello? Hi, is this Rose? Yeah. Hi, Rose. Um, my name is Courtney. Um, this is a, a very kind of random call, but I got your number from your son, Brandon. Uh-huh. Um, and I don't know, I don't know how much you remember. My, my grandparents and my father uh, were involved in a car accident back in 1965. And, mm-hmm. um, and I believe at the time you were married to someone else who was involved, um, Thomas Kaler. Oh, yeah, Thomas Kaler. Yeah. yeah. We talked for less than 30 minutes, but it was an eye-opening conversation for both of us. Rose and Tommy met as teenagers through mutual friends. Teenagers used to hang out together a lot back then, and they'll have river parties and uh, that kind of thing, you know, so I met him like that. In 1962, when Tommy was 20 and Rose was only 16, the two married. Over the next three years, they had two children, a boy and a girl. But then, on that warm, clear November night in 1965, Tommy, Larry, and Jimmy went bar hopping. After drinking for an unknown amount of time, the three piled into the car and headed south on the Avenal cutoff to visit Tommy's sister and brother-in-law. But they never made it there. How did you find out that there had been an accident or you know, what was that kind of like for you? I know you said you don't remember too much, but what do you remember about that? 
And then, I'm sorry, go ahead. No, it's okay, honey. It was just a very hard time for me. Rose is a little off on those numbers. In reality, there were eight people involved, four of which were killed. Regardless, she was 19 at the time of the accident, just two years younger than my grandmother, Linda. She had two young children, and she was living with her in-laws. With Tommy now hospitalized, she had no income, although Tommy didn't work much to begin with. Rose told me that he did odd jobs here and there, but was more or less a bit of a bum. Last episode, we covered how Tommy's lawyer was able to convince Judge Wingrove during the first preliminary hearing that there was insufficient evidence to charge Tommy. But a few weeks later, the district attorney's office struck back, bringing witnesses from law enforcement and the doctor who examined some of the victims to the stand. They testified that Tommy was most definitely the driver of the southbound car, and that he was driving drunk and at a high speed. Three hours after the wreck, a blood test showed Tommy's blood alcohol content to be 0.14%. There were no legal limits in the state of California in 1965, but today, it's illegal to operate a motor vehicle with a blood alcohol content of 0.08% or higher. Further, California Highway Patrol Officer Donald Bertram testified that upon examining the skid marks on the road, he concluded that even using the lowest possible computations, Tommy was traveling on the wrong side of the road at speeds in excess of 76.8 miles per hour. Because I just couldn't stand him, because I knew he had killed all those people, because the way he drove when he was drunk and that he also tried killing me twice in a car so I knew you know that he did it I had no doubt mm -hmm. that he was guilty of doing that Tommy was arraigned in April of 1966 on four counts of manslaughter and three counts of felony drunken driving, but was released on $3,300 bail. He'd lost his first court-appointed lawyer due to the lawyer's family obligations, so a public defender named A. Hugo Pearson was secured as his counsel. Then, Judge Wingrove retired due to an ongoing illness that took his life the following month. While the county worked to find a permanent replacement for the judge, a retired judge named Hugh Donovan presided over the case. Once I had Tommy's full name and more details about the accident, I was able to call the Kings County Courthouse in California and request copies of any paperwork related to the case. I gave the clerk the related names and dates, then waited a few days while she completed the search. When the call came through that she had found the paperwork, there was only one thing on my mind. Was he convicted? On the other end, I heard the clerk let out a puff of air, as if the answer was obvious. Yeah, he was convicted, she said. This was good news, but 
I was confused. By then, I'd discovered through my research that Tommy had died just four years after the accident. Did that mean he died in prison? He was only 27, so the circumstances had to have been unusual. When I finally had the court documents in hand a few weeks later, things became a little bit clearer. H.L. Grizzo of California Highway Patrol, being first duly sworn, makes complaint and deposes and says that on information and belief, in Avenal Judicial District, County of Kings, State of California, on or about the 6th day of November 1965, and before the filing of this complaint, the crime of felony, to wit, was committed by Thomas Leon Kaler, who is now in the County of Kings, as follows. Count 1. Did unlawfully kill, without malice, Gerald Eugene Klein, while driving a vehicle, and in the commission of an unlawful act, not amounting to a felony with gross negligence. Counts 2, 3, and 4 are also for manslaughter, but are in regards to Linda Klein, Robin Klein, and James Hamilton. Count 5. For a further and separate cause of action, being a different offense of the same class of crimes and offenses as the charges set forth above, the said defendant, at the time and place aforesaid, did willfully, unlawfully, and feloniously drive a vehicle while under the influence of intoxicating liquor, and in doing so did an act forbidden by law, which act proximately caused bodily injury to Larry Jr. Jones. Count 6 and 7 are also for driving under the influence and causing bodily injury to the Klein's sons. That's seven counts, one for each victim. So what was his punishment? We'll find out after these messages. I'm probably okay to have one more drink before I drive home. I'm probably okay. I open the window to stay alert. Probably okay. I just popped some gum in my mouth. Step out of the car, please. I probably made a mistake. Probably okay isn't okay when it comes to drinking and driving. If you see a warning sign, stop and call a cab, a car, or a friend. Buzzed driving is drunk driving. A message brought to you by NHTSA and the Ad Council. At MAD, we believe in zero. Zero fathers who aren't there for bedtime. Zero mothers who miss the first day of school. Zero children who never come home. We believe in zero victims of drunk driving. With MAD, your support adds up to zero. Because we believe in a hug on the first day of school. We believe in another bedtime story. We believe in no more victims. We believe in zero. My name is Judy Teeter, and I'm the mother of three boys. My youngest, Joe, loves sports, music, and his youth group. One day, Joe asked me to drive him to school. We were going through a green light when another car ran a red light and hit us, killing Joe. The National Safety Council estimates one in four car crashes involves a cell phone. Hands-free is no safer. Visit nsc.org slash callskill. In May of 1966, with the evidence clearly stacked against him, Tommy Kaler pleaded guilty. On its face, this sounds like a welcome conclusion. But as I learned pretty quickly, this conviction was no cause for celebration. On May 10th, the Hanford Sentinel reported, Fatal wreck driver pleads guilty. Thomas Leon Kaler, 23, who was responsible for a traffic accident last November which claimed four lives, yesterday pleaded guilty in Kings County Superior Court to a single count of vehicular manslaughter, 
quote, without gross negligence, end quote. The district attorney's office requested the court accept the plea and dismiss the remained of a seven-count information, quote, in the interest of justice, end quote. That line, in the interest of justice, is pulled straight from court documents. But somehow, this doesn't feel like justice at all. All seven counts reduced down to one. And not only that, but his attorney successfully argued that Tommy should remain at liberty until his sentencing later that month, citing, quote, humane reasons as the rationale for doing so. The article continues. Pearson told the court Kaler himself had suffered severe injury in the accident, including concussion, and had required surgery to relieve cranial pressure. The defendant, said Pearson, has been working chopping cotton, an activity which not only aids in the support of his family, but also has a therapeutic value for locomotion difficulty he still experiences with one leg. Judge Hugh Donovan, interim judge for the Kings County Superior Court, referred Kaler's case to the probation officer for investigation and recommendation. At sentencing, Pearson asked for a continuance. He argued that while Tommy, quote, realizes nothing in the proceedings here can be done to restore the lives which have been lost, end quote. The lawyer was, quote, concerned with the four lives which are dependent upon the judgment, end quote. Here, he was referring to Tommy himself, plus Rose and their two children. Pearson requested that Judge Donovan refer Tommy to the Kings County Mental Health Clinic for a determination of his intelligence and an assessment on whether he could be rehabilitated. He wondered if society could, quote, aid him in adjusting to his problem, end quote. Once again, the Hanford Sentinel reported on the case, writing, Judge Donovan said it disturbed him that the accident had not made much impression on Kaler, who admits he still drinks alcoholic beverages and in March, while out on bail, received another speeding ticket. It made him wonder, said the judge, whether he should have denied the request to eliminate several of the seven counts on the original information against Kaler. At that point, Pearson pointed out that under the law, Kaler could be sentenced only once for the charges arising from a single incident. Judge Donovan was agreeable to the mental evaluation, commenting he, quote, abhors sending a man to jail just to sit. It is demoralizing, end quote. When I first read this, I was appalled, quite frankly. The judge felt it was demoralizing to send Tommy to jail, even while admitting that the defendant did not seem very impacted by the damage he'd done. But Judge Donovan hadn't made his final decision yet. First, Tommy needed to be evaluated for his mental fitness. After the sanity studies were complete, the court held a hearing. The Hanford Sentinel covered this hearing on June 1, 1966, saying, Sanity of Thomas Leon Kaler, 26, responsible for the deaths of four persons in a traffic accident last November, was questioned yesterday by Judge Hugh Donovan when the defendant appeared for sentencing. The judge said he had spent many hours studying the matter and felt, quote, it would be a terrible wrong to allow this young man to go back into the world and repeat these terrible happenings, end quote. He said he had decided to act under a section of law which allows suspension of proceedings for a determination of sanity, where there is doubt. Sentencing had already been delayed a week to allow a psychiatric evaluation by one doctor. This initial examination brought a report that Kaler lacks the ability to quote, relate meaningfully, end quote, to his problems, 
and it was doubtful he could benefit from treatment. Defense counsel A. Hugo Pearson said this report reinforced his personal conclusion that Killer did not have an insight into the nature of his transgressions. Once again, the sentence was delayed. And once again, Judge Donovan seemed conflicted as to what to do with Tommy Kaler. To buy more time and investigate further, Tommy's lawyer requested that two additional doctors, Dr. Mark Seifert of Fresno and Dr. James Shelton of Porterville State Hospital, examine his client. Judge Donovan obliged, and he also ordered that Dr. Gisela Shannon, the doctor who originally examined Tommy and noted that he would probably not benefit from treatment, supplement her initial report. Sometime during the three weeks that followed, Dr. Shannon did supplement her report. But this time, inexplicably, she determined that Tommy would benefit from treatment. Armed with this new information, Judge Donovan was ready to make his decision. On June 21, 1966, the Hanford Sentinel announced the news. Thomas Leon Kaler, 26, convicted of manslaughter in a four-death highway accident of last November, was given freedom under probation rather than the jail sentence yesterday in King's Superior Court. Judge Hugh Donovan, retired of Carmel, gave Kaler his freedom as encouragement to rehabilitate himself. But the judge warned Kaler that if he violated the five-year probation and if Judge Donovan was presiding when that occurred, he would then receive the most severe penalty the law would allow. Kaler must, one, abstain totally from liquor in places where it's sold. Two, not drive on highways. He could drive vehicles on farms to earn a living, the judge pointed out. Three, take psychiatric treatment from Kings County Mental Health Clinic. Under questioning by Judge Donovan, it was brought out that Kaler has a wife and two children, that the family is supported on welfare, and that he has no job, although he is able and willing to work. Because of this, the judge said the imposition of a heavy fine would become, quote, too much of a burden, end quote. And that was that. For killing four people and critically injuring three others, Tommy Kaler was granted five years of probation. Tommy Kaler walked away free. He'd continued to drive at high speeds and drink alcohol regularly. And at some point during the court proceedings, that job that Tommy's lawyer used to persuade the judge to grant him bail, you know, the one he said fed Tommy's children and was therapeutic for Tommy's injuries, that job had now vanished. I have no way of knowing whether those circumstances were purely coincidental or convenient stretching of the truth to manipulate the court. Either way, it worked. And I have to tell you, there's a word that comes to mind when I consider this outcome. Demoralizing. Eight months after he was released on probation, Tommy was caught driving on a suspended license. According to Barbara, the niece of Jimmy Hamilton and Larry Jones, he was caught leaving a bar. Initially, Tommy was fined $115, but since this was a violation of his probation, he was sent to prison. In the documents that I obtained, the record indicates that Tommy Kaler's arraignment and plea of guilty and probation was granted on June 20, 1966, for five years with certain terms and conditions, and it now appearing that this probation has been violated, 
the matter was duly set of probation and the defendant appeared in person and with counsel, A. Hugo Pearson. And after hearing the evidence, the court finds that the terms and conditions of probation have been violated to wit. He drove an automobile while his license was suspended and used intoxicating beverages and therefore probation is hereby revoked. The defendant was then asked if he had any legal cause to show why judgment should not be pronounced against him, to which defendant replied he had none. It is therefore ordered, adjudged, and decreed that the said Thomas Leon Kaler be punished by imprisonment in the county jail of the County of Kings in the state of California for the term of one year. The defendant, Thomas Leon Kaler, was then remanded to the custody of the sheriff of said county. For my Uncle Paul, this still isn't enough. The only thing anyone ever told me was it was a drunk driver. He uh, had multiple offenses before our parents were murdered, and that's what I call it. And he got basically a slap on the wrist for murdering our parents. Beyond the incidences I've already shared, I haven't been able to find any concrete evidence that suggests Tommy Kaler had been previously arrested for similar offenses. But during our interview, Rose indicated more than once that this was not the first or last time that he drove drunk. No, he, he got out of that. It was just, I can't remember how much, a year or something like that in, in the county jail or the, what I can't remember what they called it, where they used to go out and work for on farms and all that kind of thing, you know. Mm-hmm. He didn't get hardly any time at all. I thought, you know, it was his fault, and I always... Blamed, blamed him for that, and I couldn't hardly stand him after that. And I was always so disgusted because he didn't get any punishment out of that. He got away with that. Mm-hmm. No, and he ended up so many car accidents after that. Of course, he never killed anybody else, but he nearly killed himself many times. It was just destined that he was going to end up, you know. So, in September of 1969, Rose divorced Tommy. They'd been separated for a while before that, but she'd made her way out to Stanislaw, California with her two children. Rose tried to move on, but Tommy hung around, she says. He'd show up unannounced and threaten to hurt them, or worse. But, three months after the divorce was finalized, It wasn't Rose or her children who were the victims of violence. It was Tommy. But other than that, no, and then, like I said, four years later, my brother died. He was shot, you know, he was shot and killed, so. That's next time on Here's What I've Heard. Here's What I've Heard is produced by Courtney Abood and Craig Brown. Musical direction was provided by Julia Cannon, featuring Bobby Steinfeld on piano. Big thanks to our patrons who have supported us along the way. To be a patron and gain access to exclusive content, like stories about other killers that DAs Edwin Verzel and Hugo Pearson prosecuted and defended, visit patreon.com slash here's what I've heard. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash here's what I've heard. Or visit here's what I've heard dot com and choose donate from the menu.